in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. We're going to read verses 10 through the end of the chapter. The same verses that we read last week and, and um, continue to look at the, the resolution of this conflict between the, the eastern tribes, the eastern two and a half tribes, and the western nine and a half tribes. Last week we looked in detail at verses 10 through 18, and so today we will evaluate the rest of the chapter. We're going to read again verses 10 through 34. And they came on the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. And the children of Israel heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. And the children of Israel sent unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. And with him ten princes of each chief house of prince throughout all the tribes of Israel. And each one was ahead of the house of their fathers among the thousands of Israel. And they came unto the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, unto the land of Gilead, and they spake with them, saying, Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel, to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that ye have builded you an altar, that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? In the iniquity of, is the iniquity of Peor too for us, from which we are not cleansed until this day? although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord. And it will be, seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow He will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel. And that man perished not alone in his iniquity. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth in Israel, he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day, that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, In time to come, your children might speak unto our children and saying, What have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, ye children of Reuben and children of Gad. Ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, Let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you and your generations after us, 
that we might do the service of the Lord before Him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore said we, that it shall be when they should so say to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say again, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, or for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before His tabernacle. And when Phinehas the priest and the princes of the congregation and heads of the thousands of Israel which were with him heard the words that the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spake, it pleased them. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and to the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us because ye have not committed this trespass against the Lord. Now ye have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the princes returned from the children of Reuben and from the children of Gad out of the land of Gilead unto the land of Canaan to the children of Israel and brought them word again. And the thing pleased the children of Israel. And the children of Israel blessed God and did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land wherein the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar Ed. For it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Give us wisdom today as we as we search your word, Lord. May it uh, give us insight in the way that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said last week, we... We got up to verse number 18, and verses 11 through through 20 are the presentation by the nine and a half tribes of their concern to the two and a half tribes. The nine and a half tribes are expressing their concern that they're they're convinced that this altar is going to lead to no good. It's going to lead to idolatry and they might actually even be suspecting that that was the purpose that it was built. I mean, that it was built to essentially take the place of the altar in Shiloh. So, until we get to verse 21, we still have two or three verses left of their their presentation of their concern. And in verse number 18, last week we saw in the in the in the preceding verses that their their main consideration was the Lord. They were concerned about God's name being protected. They didn't want Israel to be uh, they didn't want the name of the Lord to be blasphemed by Israel doing precisely what God had forbid them to do and that is worshiping other gods or sacrificing in whatever place they choose. But now in verse number 18 they, they make it a little bit more personal. They say, hey, we have, we have a motive of self-preservation. We're concerned God's going to destroy us. And that's not without merit. You know, they are citing, they're going to cite previous instances where when God gets angry, He tends to start killing people. And so they're very much concerned about that. They say, there in verse number 18, they say, that to, they, seeing ye rebel, in other words, the two and a half tribes 
are going to be, the nine and a half tribes are viewing what they're going to be doing as rebellion, and yet they're saying, God's going to punish all of us. You know, all twelve tribes are going to be punished if we allow you to part, to go through with this wickedness. And so, you know, we've seen that pattern throughout the book of Joshua, that the sin of an individual many times has ramifications and has an impact on others. And they certainly understand this. In verse number 19, they say that if the land east of the Jordan River is going to cause you to commit idolatry, then you need to move over to the west side of the river. And they're willing to go to great lengths to see that this idolatry isn't committed. They say that we're willing to give you some of our land if that's what it takes. That's unselfishness. That's what they were willing to do to, in order to prevent their brothers from you know, being dragged down into this sin. And this is good advice. I mean, their advice is, you know, if something is going to cause you to, to, be, to sin, then, you know, change your circumstances. Remove yourself from the situation. We would, we would probably all identify with the, the common expression in our day, don't put a bottle in front of an alcoholic. You know, if having this extra altar is going to lead to or have a tendency to lead to them committing idolatry, well then get rid of the altar or get away from the altar. So they're encouraging them to, to move over to the west side of the river. I know in my life, um, I don't have cable TV. Now, I couldn't be any more clear. I don't see anything wrong with cable TV. I mean... I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't have cable TV. I don't have cable TV because t cable TV for me is a huge time waster. I have just found in my life that when I don't have cable television, I spend more time doing things that are constructive and more time doing things that are honoring to the Lord than when I don't have cable television. And again, I don't, I don't want to be... You know, I, I, I want to be perfectly clear. I'm not saying having cable TV is sinful. I don't believe that at all. I, I think Paul is making the argument in Romans 14 that what is sinful to one person isn't necessarily sinful to another. I don't have enough self-discipline to turn the television off and spend the time doing things that I should be doing, spend the time doing things that I should be doing honoring the Lord. And so for me, that's the solution. I just don't have it. I... I can find enough things to waste my time doing. You know, I don't need additional incentives. And their argument is, again, the slippery slope mentality. You know, they say, you know, this is going to, having this altar so easily available is going to lead to idolatry. This is the argument that they're making. They're saying, you know, you know as I said last week, they could easily see how the two and a half tribes will, will, will rationalize and say, We've got a perfectly good altar right or why we need to go all the way to Shiloh. And that's what they that's certainly what they want to discourage. In verse number twenty, they cite an example of God punishing many for the sins of one. They cite the example of Achan. Turn back to Joshua chapter seven. We'll just look at a couple of verses pertaining to the story of Achan. Just to Refamiliarize ourselves with this situation that to understand that what they're arguing here in verse 20 is totally justified. Joshua chapter 7, verse number 1 
says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. So there in verse 1, the verse starts with the children of Israel. It ends with the children of Israel. But in the middle, we're told that it was only the trespass of one person. And yet God was angry with everyone. Look at verse number 5, Joshua 7, 5. It says, And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. We have a minimum of at least 36 other people being killed in this verse as a result of Achan's sin, as a result of God's judgment. Notice verses 24 and 25. Joshua 7, 24 and 25. It says, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent, all that he had, and they brought them unto the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, that's Achan, and burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. So we have not only the 36 people that were destroyed on, on the, you know, in, the battle, in the failed attempt to take Ai, but now we see that Achan's entire family is also destroyed. You can turn back to Joshua 22. So... This is a perfectly good argument that these nine and a half tribes are making. They're saying, when God gets angry, He looks at us as a corporate body. Everyone will suffer as a result of the sin of one person. So they say, we're not going to permit it. We're going to do what we can to intercede. And this is the reason for their aggressive approach. Now, verse 21 starts the response of the two and a half tribes. And... I think something that's noteworthy as you follow this discourse throughout the chapter, this is a very worthwhile discussion, and it's done in a very uh, appropriate manner. The, the two and a half tribes have given the nine and a half tribes the opportunity to present all of their arguments, to make their case. They have listened to their concerns. They don't immediately fly out the handle and interrupt them and say, you know, hey, 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 wait a minute. No, they hear them out. They know that they're not going to agree with the conclusion. The two and a half tribes are not going to agree with the conclusion that the nine and a half tribes are on. But yet, they listen to them. They let them stick their case. They don't become furious and they don't make a rash decision to just say, okay, let's go to war. That's not how they resolve this conflict. This is a meaningful discussion, not a heated debate. And Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And I'm sure many of us can personally attest to having said things that we take back, that we regret. Because we see that that's exactly what happened. They just stirred up the pot instead of made things easier. So many times as Christians, you know, we prefer not to be bothered by these types of things. Of course, who likes confrontation? Who likes conflict? Nobody. Verse number 22 this is where they begin stating that their relationship is their highest priority. Their relationship to the Lord is their highest priority. Notice the way they put it there at the beginning of verse 22. The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods. They are affirming that God is, they understand that God is the only true God. They're, they're saying that, they're saying that for the, for the purpose of what, what good, what reason would they have to build an altar to serve other gods if they don't believe in any other gods? 
And that's their argument. They said, we don't believe in any other gods. We know that there's only one true God. We know that He is the God of gods. We don't have, there's no incentive for us to want to uh, build an altar in order to, to do what they had been, you know, in verse 17, the nine and a half tribes have said, is this going to be, you know, worship of Baal Peor? Like what took place back in Numbers chapter 25? And the two and a half tribes are saying, no, no, that's not what it's going to be at all. We know there's only one true God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There in Joshua 22.22, they say, hey, if, if, if our motives are different than what we're stating, then may God strike us dead. That's, that's what it means when it says, save us not alive. I mean, that's what they say. You know, if, if we're not telling the truth, then may God judge us. May God strike us dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, remember in Joshua 22.22, their primary concern, which they start, they say our primary concern is being faithful to the Lord. But they're also, they also want to make sure that they convince the nine and a half tribes that their motives are pure also. Their relationship with their brothers is also important. They say that their relationship with the Lord is most important, which, which is, should be the case. But their relationship with their brothers is also important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says the same thing. The Corinthians have questioned Paul's faithfulness. And so Paul has written this letter to them to call them to account to let them know that uh, he has been faithful. And notice in verse number four, or chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. So in verse 3, what Paul says is, he says, I don't care. He's, Paul doesn't say to the Corinthians, I don't care what you think about me. That's not what he says. But notice how it's put. Paul says, what you think about me is a very small thing in comparison to what the Lord thinks. What's most important is what the Lord thinks. Paul cares what they thought about him. That's one of the reasons he wrote the letter. But he says when it really comes down to it, ultimately what really matters, what matters is what the Lord thinks. Now turn back to Joshua chapter 22. And this is the same argument the two and a half tribes are making. Their relationship to the Lord is the thing that's most important. That's the thing they're emphasizing the most. But they also want to make sure that they're correctly understood by the nine and a half tribes. And so they want to clear up any misperceptions. They want to make sure they don't intentionally allow them to be misled. They're going to state, they're, they're going to, in the next several verses, they're going to state their case as to why they built this, this other altar, why they did what they did. Verse number 23, they say that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord or if to offer their own burnt offering or meat offering. They say, God's going to decide. They say, we know that the Lord knows what our true motives are. Even though you may not understand our true motives, we know that ultimately the Lord knows what our heart, what the intent of our heart was. The Lord knows the true reasons we did this. And in verse 24, they explain why they built it. 
They are concerned that the children on the West will antagonize their children in future generations, basically teasing future generations, saying if they hadn't built this altar, what they fear is that eventually the tribes on the West would say, we have an altar over here. You don't. God must like us more than you. We must be more dedicated to him than you are. You know, all these different reasons that that they are anticipating that the tribes on the West will try to make the case that they are superior to the tribes on the East. So they say, when we were going back, when Joshua sent us home, we got this idea that we're going to build this altar to remind us to be faithful to the Lord. That's that's what their stated goal is. That's the reason they've done it. Maybe in hindsight it wasn't the best idea, but that's the reason that they've done it. They're genuinely concerned about future generations. Uh, One of the stated dilemmas here is one of the things that they anticipate that the nine and a half tribes will try to make an issue out of is the Jordan River being a barrier for them coming to Shiloh. And it is a barrier. We don't think twice about crossing a river. I cross the river every time I come to church. There are more than adequate bridges. I've never given a second thought as to whether or not the bridge is going to collapse when I'm driving over it. But they didn't have that privilege. Um, it would have been more difficult. It would have certainly crossing a river wouldn't have been, you know, a mundane event. It would have been something that would have taken some planning and some some, you know, being very careful. Um, and so that's one of the arguments that they anticipate that the nine and a half tribes will use saying, you know, hey, we've got this river here. It's a barrier. You know, it's kind of like, you know, we, we would think of today as a Berlin Wall that separates two groups of people. And they say, you know, we just wanted to make sure that we built this altar to remind ourselves of the importance of going over there to Shiloh to worship at the true altar. You know, when I was, when we were looking for a, a church, uh, certainly the distance was one of the things that factored into our decision. I live 20 miles from church. Um, I know many here, uh, even if they don't live as, as many miles away from church as I do, and I know some of you do, but many of you drive as, as long as I do. My drive's pretty much all interstate, and so I know many of you who have to stop at various stoplights and things like that. It may take you as long to get to church as I do. But you've all apparently made the same decision that I did, and that is that you're not going to allow the distance that you are away from the church You're not going to allow that to prevent you from being faithful to the Lord. And that should factor into our decision. You know, when we're choosing where we're going to work, where we're choosing where we're going to go to worship, uh, we're going to have to take that into consideration. And I think these two half tribes did take that into consideration all the way back in Numbers chapter 32 when they asked Moses for this land. I mean, they have a history of being misunderstood. You recall back in Numbers 32 when they asked Moses for this land, Moses just got irate. He just flew off the handle. He just says, I can't believe my ears. He says, I, I want to go to the promised land and I don't get to. And you guys get to, but you don't want to. <laughs> I mean, that's really what Moses was saying. But ultimately, Moses said, well, I'll consult with the Lord about this. And Moses did. And then Moses says, okay, it's okay. You can have your land on the east side of the river. But initially, Moses' reaction was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't very pleasant. And now... These two and a half tribes are being misunderstood again. So, you know, they have a history of being misunderstood. I can, I can sympathize with them. I'm sure many of us can sympathize with them when we feel that we've been misunderstood. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul mentions that Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, were very instrumental in his faith. And 
the arguments that these two and a half tribes are making for the reasons that they built this altar is because they're saying we're concerned about our kids. We're concerned about our future generation. We we know how quickly people can fall away and we don't want we don't want to you know, we don't want our children to lose sight of the fact to to fail to remember the importance of going to Shiloh and worshiping at the true altar. And so they say that's the reason that we've built this thing. And a lot of us, you know, we would be wise to give thought to our children. You know, we and I'm sure many of us do. We do things that that are designed to make sure that our children understand the importance of maintaining a proper relationship with the Lord. Uh, you know, our our children's spiritual inheritance is so much more than their material inheritance. I mean, many people who would give much thought into leaving their children a material inheritance, such as a lot of money, that time would be better spent figuring out how to leave them a great spiritual heritage. Figuring out how to teach them that their relationship with the Lord is way more important than any amount of money that they will ever have. Verse number 25. Again, they're, they're kind of continuing to state their case about the their fear that the nine and a half tribes will argue that God made the Jordan River a border to separate them. Um, there's certainly no guarantee, as obviously is, as is proven later in, in the book of Judges, there's no guarantee that the nine and a half tribes are going to remain faithful to the Lord just because they're closer to the altar of Shiloh than the two and a half tribes. And we know they didn't. By the time we get to 1 Samuel, we know that Eli's sons are committing t- completely wicked acts right on the doorstep of the tabernacle. So, you know, being right next to the tabernacle in Shiloh is no guarantee that somebody's going to have a right relationship with the Lord. Just like being far away from the tabernacle in Shiloh, east of the Jordan River, is no guarantee that you're not going to have a right relationship with the Lord. I mean, regardless of your location, you can, your heart can be right. Your heart can be right with the Lord. Now, certainly they want to be in obedience, and the Lord had commanded that they needed to come here. But again, I'm just making the point that, you know, and, and actually, we've made this point in previous weeks when we've looked at the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know, being in the temple or being in the altar is no guarantee that your heart is right. No more than anyone sitting here today, just because you're here in this building and you have, you know, you're sitting in a pew doesn't mean that you're right with the Lord. So, you know, that that's not an argument for superiority based on their location. Verse number 26, they state emphatically, that the altar is not for burnt offering or sacrifice. I mean, they just want to be perfectly clear. They say, "That's what you that's you accused us of building it for that. We're just going on and make it. We're going to make it perfectly clear. That's not what it's for. Just you know, no question about it. Total denial of that. What they say in verse seven is it? It's simply a reminder. To notice how it's put there, that it may be a witness between us and you." And future generations. It is simply a reminder to people on both sides of the river that the people on the east side of the river have just as much of a right to the altar at Shiloh as the people on the west side of the river. That's the reason that they built it. They wanted it to be a reminder to them to remain faithful to the Lord. It's a reminder to the eastern tribes to be faithful to the Lord, but it's also a reminder to the western tribes to encourage the eastern tribes to be faithful to the Lord. And that's what they're saying there in verse 27. 
In verse number 28, they say it is a witness, a memorial, a reminder of the true altar. It is an exact replica. That's what the word pattern there means. And that was one of the reasons that the nine and a half tribes had become so alarmed. I mean, when they saw an exact replica going up, to me, it certainly is logical that their suspicion would be, what in the world are they doing? Are they building this to compete with the altar at Shiloh? But what these two and a half tribes say there in verse 28 is they're saying, no, it's the exact opposite. We haven't built this other altar to compete with the true altar in Shiloh. We have built it to promote the true altar in Shiloh. We have built it so we won't forget about the true altar in Shiloh. That's the reason that they built it. They want to make that perfectly clear. And they do. I mean, they state that emphatically. And then notice verse 29. They state emphatically, God forbid... They have no intentions of rebelling against the Lord. They have no intentions of committing idolatry and violating God's commandments by offering sacrifices on this altar. They didn't build it to take a shortcut. They didn't build it to, to avoid going to Shiloh. They didn't, they didn't build it to avoid having to make a trip to Shiloh. Now, in verse number 30, that, that end, verse number 29 then ends the... the the rebuttal, essentially, of the two and a half tribes. They have now stated their case. You know, they listened to the nine and a half tribes present their concerns. Now they have refuted all of them. They have, they have made it very clear the reasons why they built this altar. And so now in verses 30 through, 40, 30 through 34, we have the, the response of the nine and a half tribes. And, of course, Phineas, who was leading the delegation, he's the first to proclaim his trust in them. Verse number 30, And when Phinehas the priest and the princes of the congregation and the heads of the thousands of Israel which were with him heard the words that the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spake, it pleased them. They're happy with their explanation. They take it at face value. They don't cast a lot of skepticism on their explanation. They, they believe them. Uh, notice verse 31. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said unto the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because ye have not committed this trespass against the Lord. Phinehas says, We know the Lord is among us when He protects us from His judgment. That's what he says. We know the Lord is among us when He protects us from His judgment. He says, now that ye have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. So the nine and a half tribes, they return to the west side of the river. They let everyone know that the situation was settled peacefully, that all is well. And remember, early in, earlier in the chapter, the entire, all the people of the nine and a half tribes, they're waiting in Shiloh for this report. They have gathered and are ready to go to war. They've decided that this was worth going to war over. They are overjoyed that they don't have to, but they were willing to because this was that important. You know, sometimes in this situation, both, uh, you know, the two and a half tribes were just misunderstood. But sometimes you just simply have to tell somebody they're wrong. 
Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul writes a letter to the Galatians, he says, I withstood Peter to his face and I told him he was wrong. Paul says, you know, when I went to Antioch, Peter was there eating with the Gentiles. As soon as the Jews showed up, Peter decided that he couldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. And Paul said, I had to tell him that that was dead. one where Paul says, I couldn't let it go. I had to respond to it. You know, Peter was just clearly wrong there. And sometimes that's the case. But that's not the case here. This is just a misunderstanding. Uh, Another example would be Joseph. You know, Joseph's brothers, we're told by the Lord, we don't have to guess, Joseph's brothers meant what they did to Joseph for evil. There was no harm intended here. These two and a half tribes didn't intend for any harm when they built this altar. Not, not at all. So again, that, that's a different situation also. I like the way Matthew Henry puts it. You know, in verse 33, we see that everyone was, when the report comes back to the congregation, everybody is pleased with the explanation. They're all happy. They're all glad. They all thank God that war was avoided. But Matthew Henry points out, and I think he hit the nail right on the head, this controversy ended in peace because both sides wanted the same thing, to glorify the Lord. They both wanted the same thing. There was a misunderstanding. And no doubt some, uh, you know, Maybe some conclusions had been jumped to that shouldn't have. I mean, when I read verses 10 through 18, it certainly does sound to me like the nine and a half tribes are being accusatory. But they certainly had a, a good reason for their concern. And they wanted to make sure that the Lord's name was protected. They wanted to make sure that the nation didn't degenerate into idolatry. And the two and a half tribes wanted to make sure that they honored the Lord. They wanted to make sure that future generations didn't forget about the Lord. So they, they all had the glory of the Lord in mind. And I think that's why, as Matthew Henry points out, they were able to reach a peaceable conclusion because they both realized that they both were after the same thing. Also, one thing that's worth noting that is missing from the story, which I think is interesting, the nine and a half tribes don't demand that they demolish it. I'm sure a lot of people would have been much more comfortable had that happened. They, you know, they take them at, at their word. They say, "Okay, we we believe you. You're not gonna you're not gonna use this thing inappropriately." But I, I I've got to believe there were many who probably thought, "Boy, this this would be a whole lot easier. You know, we would just feel a lot better if you just tear that thing apart and throw those stones back, you know, and disperse." But they didn't. They didn't demand that of them. They they give them the freedom to use this in a way that they felt that it was going to benefit them, and that is to be a reminder to them to be faithful to the Lord. In verse number 34, they named the altar Ed, which means a witness. And that was likely to make sure that they did not forget the stated purpose of the altar. Um, you know, when, when people would see that altar in, in the future, in days to come, it would have a name and people would know what that name was. And the name would give it away as to what it was for. The name would imply that it was, into, was not to be used for for burnt offerings and peace offerings and all of those different types of sacrifices. The name would imply that it was just there for a testimony. It was just there to be a witness. So, was there any remorse on the part of the nine and a half tribes? Do they have egg on their face? I don't think so. Um, again, I think, you know, they may have come across as being a bit accusatory. 
But their intentions sure were good. I mean, no doubt there was probably, you know, some sin involved. I mean, they're all sinners. Everything we do is tainted with sin. Fortunately, God overlooks a lot of our sinfulness when, when our intentions are good. But no, I don't think the nine and a half tribes, uh, you know, they don't necessarily need to be remorseful. I mean, there's no hint that they've apologized. There's also no indication that the two and a half tribes harbor any, any, ear, harbor any ill feelings about the deal. There's no indication that they hold a grudge. That there's, there's, you know, they don't say, "I, I, how dare you come and even confront us and even ask us, ask us these kinds of questions." They don't do that, and you know, question for us. I mean, how do we respond when somebody asks us a question? If they're merely asking a question, they're not even being accusatory. You know, when we when we're talking to the young people in the youth group, you know. I always try to encourage the young people to say, you know, if, if you have a parent that asks questions, boy, you should be really thankful for that. You, you might think that it's pretty neat that you have friends whose parents just let them do whatever they want and don't ask them any questions. That's not very neat. And, you know, I, I realize that a lot of them aren't going to understand that until they're older, but nevertheless, that, that, that shows genuine concern on the part of a parent. You know, but yet we understand, you know, a lot of times teenagers get upset. Why are you asking so many questions? Don't you trust me? Well, I know you're a sinner like everybody else. And so therefore, yeah, I'm going to ask questions. I might, you know, I might do some checking up on you. I mean, that's that's the way it goes. But that's not the response that the two and a half tribes had. That wasn't the attitude that they had. How dare you even confront us about this? That's that's unbiblical. We're not going to, we don't have time to look at all the verses, but in the New Testament, we are told as believers to confront one another. We are told to encourage one another. We are told to provoke one another. We are told to edify one another. We are told to go to one another. It's really an unbiblical position to say, you know, if the, if the attitude would have, of the two and a half tribes would have been, well, mind your own business, who asked you? That's unbiblical. That's not the attitude that we are told to have as New Testament believers. We, we should be grateful that people are concerned about us. We are many times too timid and too shy and too cautious. And we just have a, you know, that's, that's the, the environment that we live in. You know, everybody just does their own thing and nobody really checks up, at you, uh, up, checks up on each other. I, I was over at my dad's house just a week or two ago and he was recounting how that when he was a child, his dad spanked every kid in the neighborhood. Nowadays, that would be unheard of. I mean, you know, my kids were just looking at him like, what? But my dad said, yeah, my dad, he didn't, you know, and then, and then the other dads would thank him for it. You know, he would thank my grandpa for spanking their kids because they needed it. But we've come a long way from anything like that. I mean, nowadays, the attitude, mind your own business, how, who would even think of such a thing? Also, the, the fact that the Nine and a half tribes made such a big deal out of this, I think would have helped so that future generations would have known, hey, this really is important. This really is important that this thing not be misused, that it be used for the purposes that it was stated. You know, I mean, I could see the two and a half tribes saying, you know, we never intended to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings on that. 
But now we really don't intend to. Now we understand how important this is. We understand that the other tribes are willing to go to war over this if we do. I mean, it just underscored how important that it was. I remember, uh, you know, we might have a tendency to think that the nine and a half tribes overreacted. And I, I remember, you know, when Pat Campbell and I were on the, the deacon board in, in another church, you know, he, he had told me, he said, um, you know, the pendulum always swings too far one way. He says, you know, we find that we overreact. And so then the next time a similar situation comes up, we underreact. And then, you know, everybody gets upset because we underreacted. And so then, you know, the next time we overreact. And it just, you know, that's the way the pendulum swings back and forth. It's very hard to achieve the correct balance. And I find that, you know, with my children, you know, as I've disciplined my children over the years, some things I can look back and I say, you know, I probably really underreacted about that. And then other things I can look back and say, you know, that really wasn't such a big deal, but I made a big deal out of that. Maybe I overreacted. And, you know, we pray and we ask the Lord for wisdom. It's hard to achieve that balance. And, you know, maybe some of these Maybe the nine and a half tribes would have, looked, would have looked back and said, you know, maybe we overreacted, but I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, they know that a, a lot is at stake here. We don't need to turn there because we're about out of time, but in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul confronted the Corinthians about a lot of things. And in 1 Corinthians 5.11, he says, you should, not, you should not keep company with anyone who calls himself a brother, who is covetous, who is a fornicator, who is an idolater, who is, who is a drunkard. Now we understand, I mean, it seems obvious enough to us why Paul would encourage fellow believers not to associate with other believers, people who claim to be believers, who are drunkards, fornicators, and idolaters, but covetous? How do we classify someone as covetous? What criteria do we use to measure that? And yet Paul, he just lumps that right into the same list. It's a sin just like the rest. When I, when I read 1 Corinthians 5.11 and I see that covetousness is, is listed among those sins that Paul says we are not to associate with fellow believers, those who call themselves the believers that are guilty of those sins, I think of Achan. He admits it. I mean, we don't have to guess. He says... I saw that wedge of gold, I saw that Babylonian garment, and I covered it and I took it. And I'm guilty. And, you know, when we get to Joshua chapter 22, and, you know, these nine and a half tribes are confronting the two and a half tribes, I have to wonder, you know, uh, were there signs that people ignored in Achan's life? I mean, was his covetousness over the top? I mean, could people have looked at his life and say, you know, that guy, it just seems like the only thing that keeps him going is his quest to accumulate more stuff and to accumulate more wealth. I mean, I don't know. I'm totally speculating. I don't, I'm not suggesting that that's in the text. Although I have a hard time believing that Achan just saw this stuff and for the very first time in his life had this moment of covetousness come over him. I'm guessing it was probably a pattern. And so I have to wonder if there were those that had witnessed that and observed that in his life, and maybe they could have prevented that tragedy by saying, you know, Aiken, you really ought to think about the way you live. You ought to really think about your covetousness. It just seems to be very blatant and very obvious. I don't know. But, again, I think it would be a tragedy for us to 
as many of us, I, I, as I know some of us certainly have a tendency to do, we just always have the edge, I don't want to get involved. I'll just sweep it under the rug. I'll just look the other way. I'll just ignore it. If I see a fellow believer that's headed in the wrong direction, who am I to raise a concern? Who am I to say anything? And so that, that's why I said, I, when, I, when I read that verse, I have to wonder, you know, were there those who could have spoken up in the life of Achan and, and maybe, you know, encouraged him and, and, you know, maybe things wouldn't have had to turn out the way they did? I don't know. But I've got to believe that's a lot of what Paul's getting at in the New Testament when he encourages us as believers to, to you know, encourage one another and to go to one another and confront one another. I mean, that's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians there. He's writing them a letter and saying, hey, you've got people in your church that are doing this, this, and this. You shouldn't even be, you shouldn't even be associating with them. We're about out of time, but we have a few minutes. Does anybody have anything they want to contribute or, or uh, comment? Certainly feel free to speak up. Anyone? No one?